Romans chapter 8, 1 Peter 4, and 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to have you guys turn in a few different places today. Okay, we left off in Romans 8, and here's kind of the message. Here's the place where we are. That if you are a Christian, that is if you've been justified by faith in Jesus alone, right? You've given your life to him, then you have been adopted into the family of God. We see that in Romans 8, verses 14 to 18. Let me just really, really briefly review uh, what we talked about last Sunday. First of all, we see that the Spirit, when you're adopted into the family of God, the Spirit of God instructs the sons of God. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Then we saw the Spirit of God gives us intimacy with God the Father. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba is Daddy in the Greek. It's an intimate word. Okay, Spirit instructs us, gives us intimacy. Verse 16, the Spirit includes us in the same inheritance with Jesus. That's amazing when you think of it. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We actually are heirs to the same things that Jesus is heirs to, which is amazing. It's all going along so beautifully, verse 17, until we get to the middle of verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Oh man, it was going so well. Welcome to the family of God. Any family you're you're in, you're going to take the good and the bad, right? Well, verse 17 says, welcome to the family of God. Part of being part of the family of God is being in trouble. That is, suffering is just a part of being part of the family of God. I shared this with with you all last week, and it was such a great definition. I want to share it again. I didn't make this up, otherwise that would be prideful. No, I, I stole this from someone, fair and square. Listen to this. The definition of a Christian is one who is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. Completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. Let me ask you this morning, is that a good description of you? Most of us are saying, well, I've got the trouble part down. It's just the fearful, fearless part and the cheerful part that I'm lacking. Consider Paul. How is it possible Paul could be so constantly in trouble and yet so completely fearless and continually cheerful? Well, that's kind of where we've been and where we are this morning. We got, got our first clue about this, this amazing ability that Paul has to be cheerful in the midst of trouble. Here's the first clue that we, that we touched upon last week. Here it is. Paul understands that there is a link between suffering and glory. In the Bible, you find it everywhere. There's a link between suffering and glory. Matter of fact, you guys read the words suffering or suffers and glory. Look at verse 17. It says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the 
sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul says, look, there's this tie between suffering and glory. Now, lest you think that Paul was the only one privy to this amazing insight. Guess what? Peter knew it too. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. You guys were doing the same drill. Suffering and glory, okay? Verse four, chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice to the extent, Peter says, that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, turn the page, uh, one chapter, First Peter chapter 5, look at verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Paul didn't have a monopoly on it. Peter understood it. There's this tie between suffering and glory. And I think, I truly think, this is one of the things that helped Paul so tremendously be, though he was constantly in trouble, he was completely fearless and continually cheerful. He understood there's a tie between suffering and glory. Every time his body suffered, he went, his mind went to glory. Every time he faced a trial, his mind went to glory. When you boil it down, as I'm going to talk your ear off for the next 35 minutes, something like that. When you boil it down, this is Paul's strategy. Every time there was suffering, his mind went to glory. Every time he groaned, he gloried. He, he looked forward to the glory. Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. If you can go back there. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. And we touched on this last week as well. Let me get some of you up to speed. The word, therefore, worthy to be compared. It's axios. Uh, it's the word for a scale. If you were to go to the, the Greek marketplace, a merchant scale, they would weigh, okay, for, for me to be fair, okay, you'll give me so much of this and I'll give you so much of this. So it was a way of comparing, right? Well, Paul says, look, the sufferings of this present time, as heavy as they might be, are not worthy to even be on the same scale with the glory that will be revealed in us. Suffering, glory, but when you compare them, there is no comparison. And we shared this last time. Let's say you could somehow lay all of your current burdens on one side of the scale. Okay, the stuff that right now is weighing down on you so hard. Let's say you could weigh, lay all those on, on this scale. And let's say somehow you could rewind and lay every burden that you've had on your life on this scale. And let's say you could fast forward and lay the burdens that are headed your way on this scale. Here's Paul's illustration. You lay all of those things on the scale... And when glory rests his big toe on the other side, your sufferings go shooting off into space. That's what he's saying. There's no comparison. It's not even worthy to be mentioned in the same breath. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's a pretty big claim, Paul. I mean, it's nice words, but how do you know? I mean, can you back that up? Well, verse 18, Paul says, can I consider... This word does not mean, in, in the old King James, it's reckon. 
But even that doesn't do the word justice. Uh, when we say reckon, I reckon that maybe it's not like that. It's logizomai. It's the word that we've seen before. It means to calculate, to compute. It's an accounting term. Paul is saying, Romans 8, verse 18 is very important. He's saying to Christians, if you've given your life to Jesus, he's talking to you right now. He says, I consider, logizomai, look, I've done the math. I've experienced both things, suffering and glory. I've done the math. I've tallied everything up. And let me tell you, I promise you, the sufferings that you are currently experiencing are not even worthy to be mentioned in the same breath with this glory that will be revealed in you. Now, someone in the room might be thinking, oh, really, Paul? Who made you such an expert on suffering? Oh, now you did it. Don't make him break out 2 Corinthians chapter 11. No, it's too late. All right, turn there. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is... You're going to learn about his credentials when it comes to talking about suffering. Paul actually has been called into question in, in this book, in 2 Corinthians. People said, look, you're not all that. You're, you're not the, this great preacher, right? Um, some perhaps even saying that he doesn't have the weight of some of the other apostles, this kind of thing. Verse 22, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes, that is, beatings, more in, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. And Paul is just getting started when it comes to the suffering that he's experienced. Let me stop and say, depending on, you know, before we start to compare ourselves to Paul, wouldn't most of us say, look, I can tell you a little about suffering. I mean, that's how I feel about myself. It's like, yeah, you know, we could probably swap stories. I could tell you some things about suffering. How many people, before you start to think about Paul, would go, yeah, I, I could probably tell you some things about suffering. Let's, let's do a little uh, visual learning here. I want everybody in the room, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay? Um, you're raising your hand, basically saying, even if it's in my little way, I'm somehow qualified to tell a little bit about suffering. Okay? And what I want us to do is we're going re- to read these words, and you get to lower your hand um, at the appropriate time when Paul kind of outdoes you. Okay? Here we go. Verse 24. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. <laughs> that means if... Okay, that's it. That was quick. <laughs> That means if you've not been flogged, that is whipped, probably with a cat of nine tails that had bones and pieces of glass in it. If you've not been flogged to within an inch of your life, when it says 40 stripes minus one, 40 stripes is what would kill you. If you've not been whipped that way to within an inch of your life five times, then you can lower your hand. Well, let's, let's see what else he has to say. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. That means if you haven't been physically assaulted probably by a government official with a rod of iron three times, you can lower your hand. He says, once I was stoned with rocks. Okay, don't be raising your hand. Once I was stoned, stoned to death. Yeah, it's... Yeah, you're getting it. Um, 
Then he says, three times I was shipwrecked. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. If you haven't experienced 24 hours of shipwreck just with, with maybe one plank to, to hold you up, wondering the, the sharks circling around you, then you can lower your hand. Verse 26, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. I get worn out just reading it. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. I think Paul's qualified talk about suffering who made you an expert on suffering Paul um, God matter of fact if you look at Acts chapter 9 remember when Paul was converted the Lord speaks to this man named Ananias and he says I want you to go and minister to this guy named Saul he said wait a second Saul I know about that guy I'm not going anywhere near him God says no I want you to go minister to him for he is a chosen, Acts 9.15, For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. From the very get-go, from the, even before his ministry, he was appointed. He was going to be an expert on suffering. Paul was an expert at suffering. And what he says to you today, Romans 8, verse 18, Look, I've done the math. And I'm telling you that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared, not even on the same scale with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So you say, okay, all right, I give. You understand suffering. Okay, you got me out, outranked, outstripped in that. But, but Paul, what makes you an expert in glory? Oh, now you did it. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Turn there, Second Corinthians chapter 12. Just one chapter past, chapter 11. Yep, I'm a math whiz right there. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Well, we don't know exactly, but we, many uh, scholars suspect that what he's going to refer to now is a vision that he had possibly while he was actually dead, while he was under the, that, that pile of rocks in Lystra. Okay? Look at verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. He's referring to himself. Verse 3, And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. You can turn back to Romans chapter 8. What Paul says there in chapter 12 of Second Corinthians, Look, I don't know if I was dead or alive, but I know this. I, what I, I know what I saw, and I know especially what I heard, and it was glory. And we would say to Paul, well, describe it for us. It's like, I, I can't describe it. It was indescribable, and even if I tried, I would be wrong for trying to describe something so awesome and glorious. But Romans 8, verse 18, our text, trust me, I've done the math. That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I think this is a huge secret that Paul has. The, the reason he could be constantly in trouble yet completely fearless and continually cheerful. 
This is why, y'all, Paul had joy in jail. Those words aren't supposed to go together, but you see them in Philippians. You see them all over the place. Paul had joy in jail. This is why Paul had, saw beauty in beatings. This is why Paul experienced Shiloh in shipwreck. Peace in persecution. Hallelujahs in a hurricane. He knew that God is actually at work turning that very suffering into glory. If you haven't written it down, please write this down. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. This is one that I, I just keep coming back to in this message because I, th- I would almost bet that this is Paul's like memory verse for himself. He's like, hey, I wrote that. Hey, that's good. I'll make that my memory verse. Second um, Corinthians 4, 17 is this. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of Glory. He's talking about suffering and glory again. And what he describes his affliction as light. Hello, Paul. Were you not reading your own words? Second Corinthians 11. Shipwreck, all of that stuff. That's light. Well, yeah, it's light to me because of my perspective. And I realize that the very thing that he's allowing in my life, he is working to an exceeding weight of eternal glory. See, the whole point, you can turn back to Romans 8, if you haven't already. Paul's whole point here, guys, if you're you're looking to live a joyful life no matter what your circumstances, and guess what, sorry, it's not going to get better. I mean, your circumstances may temporarily get better for a little bit here and there, but the whole, all of earth is kind of winding down. So if life is not going to get much better, shouldn't, we be seeking a way to be joyful in the midst of a dying world. Here's the deal. Paul's point is that something awesome is coming. Something awesome is coming right now, and that's what you need to focus on. In the, the midst of a difficult life in this broken world, something glorious is coming. And what we're going to see in these next few verses, it must be awesome. Because, guess what? All of creation can't wait for it. That's what he's going to say. And guess what? Even you yourself, in your groanings, you, you are waiting in anticipation. And then he says, look, the Spirit is even groaning. Um, if, you're, if you're looking for an outline, verses 19 to 22, you're going to see three groanings. Verses 19 to 22, creation groans in anticipation. Verses 23 to 25, we groan in hope. And verses 26 through 28, the Spirit groans in intercession. Okay? In some odd way, that was sort of my introduction. Okay. First, verse 19. The earth, that is creation, all of creation groans in anticipation. Look at verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, it may seem like a left turn to you. It did to me for about the first ten times I read it. As I've read this, I'm wondering, okay, Paul, what's your point? You've been talking about suffering and glory. And why are you now beginning to talk about creation? Well, here's what I think it is. The long and short of it, verse 19, these verses about creation, Paul is basically wanting to remind us that whatever is coming is a big deal. So much so that all of creation 
literally the, the, the words in the Greek are kind of like waiting on its tiptoes. All of creation is waiting on its tiptoes. The word earnest expectation, it literally means to stretch the neck. That is to crane the neck, to wait for in suspense. The picture is, let's say you're at a parade and you are craning the neck to see what's coming down the street. Or you're at this world premiere event. You are craning your neck to see what's coming upon the stage. Verse 19 says that all of creation stands on its tiptoes, is craning its neck to see the revealing, the unveiling of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of God? Right here. If you're not yet a son of God, I I pray that that changes today. But here's the point. All of creation is waiting. They can't wait to see the new you. The the unveiling of the sons of God. How many of you are familiar by now uh, with when Apple releases their newest product? Hey, they're pretty good at promotion and a big hoopla, yeah? Under like the iPad, the iPhone, all that stuff, right? There's this worldwide anticipation craning. We've got to see what that's all about, right? The easiest way I can explain to you verse 19 is this. The world is waiting with great anticipation for the unveiling of man 2.0. Make sense? Well, why, you say, why would creation be so interested? Verse 20, well, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Track with me here. Keep your thinking caps on. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the fact that because Adam sinned, we all were born sinners? We have his DNA, right? We're in his family tree. And we we said over and over again, thanks a lot, Adam. Remember that? Yeah? Okay. The two of you that were here? Okay. (laughs) This, This continuing theme, like, thanks a lot, Adam. Yeah, the reason that I do the things that I shouldn't be doing just instinctively is because of you, Adam. Thanks a lot. Here's the message in uh, these verses. We're not the only ones that were affected by Adam's fall. By Adam's bomb. Adam bomb. <laughs> the, the whole earth truly is saying, thanks a lot, Adam. Look at verse 21. It says, no, it was not willingly. In other words, the earth never signed up for this. Currently, what the earth has experienced never signed up for this. God said to Adam, remember when he was passing out the curses? He said, cursed is the ground because of you. Because of you, Adam, the whole earth is cursed. Before the fall, we don't even know the beauty that was there. I mean, no doubt there were grapes the size of your head. You could, you could probably feast just by pulling one piece of fruit for a, a day. Who knows? We don't know. But this much we do know that nowadays there's still beauty, but it's all mingled with thorns. There were no thorns before then. There was no futility, it says. And the whole earth says, thanks a lot, Adam. What used to be all beauty is now mingled with bitterness. See, the Bible says that after the unveiling of man 2.0, 
There will even be a day when the lion lies down with the lamb. There's no more death, no more fighting, no more striving, no more corruption. The lion lying down with the lamb. Well, yeah, that happens today, but the lion lies down with the lamb in his belly. And the lamb says, thanks a lot, Adam. Tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, all of the stuff that you read about in the paper. We blame God, but really we should be saying thanks a lot, Adam. It is sin, death, corruption that Adam, that is man version 1.0, brought into the system. The BP oil spill, the, the birds, the fish that were affected are all saying thanks a lot, Adam. Our, our whole, the, the fact that we have fuel has to be from something that has died. Nothing would have died. We, we wouldn't need fuel to get from here to there. Look, look, I've got a glorified body. I'll just go. Creation cannot wait for the unveiling of version 2.0. Because they're linked to us. Creation is, just can't wait for that unveiling to happen. Verse 21. Because the creation itself also at that time will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. The point over and over again, something awesome is coming. It's like all of creation groans, but it's not death pangs, it's birth pangs. It's like a woman in labor. Raise your hand if you have given birth. Making sure there's no guys, okay? For the, for the guys and for the rest of us. Carol Burnett, I think it was, that said, giving birth, if you need to know, is like taking your lower lip and forcing it over your head. <laughs> so we can all agree it's less than comfortable, right? But think about it. What is childbirth? When you look at it from the beginning to the end, it's when something awful turns into something awesome where God takes the very source of suffering and he turns it into glory. That's exactly how Jesus said it would be in the last days. Matthew 24, he said, look, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, tragedy all over the globe. And they're going to increase. But then they're going to wane just a little bit. And then the next wave's going to come. And then it's going to wane just a little bit. But every time it's going to be just a little worse, just a little more intense and just a little longer of these birth pangs. Anybody feel like we're kind of like at eight centimeters, nine centimeters? Not constant pain, but an unmistakable overall increase in intensity and duration. Y'all, rather than us reading the paper and freaking out, we should be thinking the same thing Paul's thinking. Something awesome is coming. The pain might be awful, but the thing that he's producing is awesome. All of this awfulness will be turned to awesomeness. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Paul's point is this. Okay, when you read the paper, when you watch the news when you see all of it spinning out of control, if you listen really carefully, this is what you'll hear. The world going, <laughs> breathe. All of creation is right now on the edge of birthing the man 2.0, if you will. 
The birthing is awful, but the baby's going to be awesome. Creation groans in anticipation. Now look at verse 23. But so do we. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan with ourselves, within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the, the adoption, the redemption of our body. So creation groans, but we groan. The older you are, the more literal this is. The older you are, the more precious this verse becomes, right? If you're a teenager, I can almost bet you that you are not quite as eagerly awaiting your version 2.0 as much as I am. Right when you're a teenager, your only groaning has to do with cleaning your room, finishing your homework. Me, my groaning happens when I get out of a chair. Every time I get out of a chair or, or try to exercise, I am groaning. Anyone else in my boat or am I just the only groaner? Okay. Think of it this way. This actually may help. Think about this. What Paul's kind of saying is every time you groan, okay, getting out of the chair or, or when you read the paper, every time you groan, it's like your body saying, so when's that version 2.0 coming again? Right? It's not just physical, though. When you read the paper, you hear the news, you see the effects of sin, we groan because we are eagerly awaiting, it says, the adoption. But wait a second. How many were here last week? Okay? It says we're eagerly awaiting the adoption. Did you, I thought we were already adopted. Didn't he say that last week? Well, verse 23 says, talks about the first fruits. The first fruits are that which are the, the first, uh, it's the first taste of the harvest. The, the idea is, look, here's just a tiny little taste, but the, the whole huge harvest is on its way. It's kind of to, to whet your appetite. Paul is saying, look, yes, we are adopted. When we say Abba, Father, when we say Daddy, it's the sweetest thing that we experience. But he's like, that's nothing compared to that which is coming. The full, uh, complete adoption. Paul says, look, we, we groan, having tasted the first fruits, we eagerly await the full, complete adoption. The, the redemption, he says at the end of that verse, not just of our spirit and our mind, which is where we are now, but of our body, the body that groans right now. In, in the verses 24 and 25, I want you guys to wake you up, read the words, words hope, okay? Nice and loud. For we were saved in this, but hope that is seen is not. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we Hope for what we do not see. We eagerly await, wait for it with perseverance. Five times, two verses, the word hope. Again, maybe just a different way to look at it. This is Paul's secret to joy in jail. Hallelujah in a hurricane. But notice in these two verses, the emphasis on the words seen and unseen. He says it's hope. Hope is the thing that keeps me joyful. But listen, I, I don't hope in the things I see. I hope in the things that I don't See, let me back up. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, right? The evidence of things not seen, but very real, but not seen. Biblical hope, I think you could define as focusing on the unseen certainties of God. Focusing on the unseen things that are real. They're just as real, just like an atom is real. You can't see it, but it's there, right? Hope is focusing on the unseen and it can change everything. This was what Paul was doing. 
He was only focusing on that which he couldn't see, but that he knew God. Uh, it was real in God. Let's, to help you out, let's go back to our woman in labor analogy. She can't see the baby. Right? Let's say that you have a dear friend who is nine months pregnant. And she comes to you and she says, Well, my water broke. You know what that means? Yeah, you're going to have a baby. That's awesome. Well, yeah, that too. But I was more focused on the pain that I'm going to have to go through here in this next few hours. You say, hello, what, what's wrong with you? I mean, yeah, you're, you're going to have the pain, but, but don't focus on the pain. Focus on what the pain brings. Yeah, but I can't even see the baby yet. Well, of course not. If you could see the baby, you wouldn't be hoping to see the baby. If you were holding the baby, you wouldn't be hoping for that baby. The, the baby is really certain. If, if you focus on only that which you can see or feel, that is the pain, the tribulation, the birth pangs, if you focus on them, then you're not going to be eagerly awaiting this, this wonderful thing. But if instead you focus on that which the, the pain brings forth, then you can eagerly wait, it says, with perseverance. I don't know if I'm doing it justice, but I'm trying to think of a way to, to bring about application. This is, what, this is what I came up with. Good luck. Perhaps there are people in the room this morning who you are, for lack of a better word, you are an e or mom. That is... You're a mom and you've got this wonderful thing that's, that's going to be birthed in you, but right now it's bringing pain. And so you're like Eeyore. Well, guess I better go through the pain. Guess God will work it out. That's, you would tell any moms like, okay, something's wacky here. You need to be focusing on that, the joy that's coming. That's exactly what Paul was doing. Romans 8.28 that we're going to get to here, if I ever shut up says, look, this is the overall message. Something good is coming. And, and, and let me say this. The baby's coming either way. The baby's coming either way, right? Some of you moms are like, yeah, I've been there. It doesn't matter how much I wish it not to happen. I didn't want to go through this pain. It's happening. So here's the deal. You only have two choices. You can either have joy mingled with the suffering, or you can just have the suffering alone. And then... God will work it out at the end, but you will have wasted your whole time of deliverance. Make sense? Depends on if you focus on that which you can see and feel, which is the pain, the immediate thing, or if you focus, as Paul did, on that which you cannot see. 2 Corinthians 4.18. I told you to write down 2 Corinthians 4.17. Just put a dash and 18 beside it, because listen to this. Paul says, look, this thing is working this exceedingly great uh, glory in us. And then he says, verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We think of it backwards. We think, oh, the things which I can see are real and they're forever. No, the things which you cannot see are eternal. When God says, I am working this for your good. That's an eternal promise. Cannot fail. You, you should be putting your faith and your, your hope and your rest in that and not on your circumstances that are temporary. Okay. 
Um, Paul says to the suffering, basically, something good is coming. It's so good that creation cranes its neck to see. It's on its tiptoes. It groans in anticipation. We ourselves also groan in hope, waiting for this glory. But in the meantime, and maybe there are some this morning here, you're like, okay, I appreciate the pep talk and all that, but I'm just... I don't even know if I can crank myself up into thinking this way, Paul. Well, there's good news for you in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with what? Groanings, which cannot be uttered. Got three groanings here. Creation groans. I groan. And the Spirit within me groans. Paul is now coming back to the the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. Last week, this is kind of, I guess you could say, part B of last week. Remember last week, he instructs us. He gives us intimacy with the Father. He includes us in inheritance, and here he intercedes for us. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. This, this word uh, in verse 26, one of the longest words that I've seen in the Greek, so wish me luck here, I'm going to try to say it. Sinantilabanomai. I think I did all right. And here's what it means. To take hold with another. Picture the Christian in a tug of war. Or picture yourself at the end of your rope. Hands blistered, shirt soaked, back aching. You can barely hang on anymore. This word says the Spirit then comes and takes hold together. And the Spirit takes over. Verse 26, like the Spirit, likewise the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we sh- should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Is anyone here, or am I the only one, had times where you just don't even know how to pray? You just don't even have a clue. Whether from fatigue or discouragement or let's say a loved one of yours is dying. And you don't even know whether you should pray that they should be healed because they're in such pain or if you should pray that the Lord would take them. You just, you're completely at a loss. You don't even know how to pray. Look at verse 26 again. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Yeah, we have the Spirit within us, who is interceding for us. And he always prays the right thing. Especially when you don't have words. Saying how, you know, it's probably not healthy for us to rate our prayers. Right? Sometimes somebody will pray here and I'll be like, hey, that was a really good one. I'm thinking, what? How dumb. Probably not a great thing to rate our prayers, but hopefully this will help, help you to understand. If I had to rate my own prayers... Some of the very best prayers I've ever prayed have been sobbing. No words. Absolutely don't know what to pray. Just sobbing, crying, sighing, sitting there quietly with nothing to offer. This brings me right back to the Abba, Father, Daddy. Just sitting in his lap and going, 
Lord, I don't, I don't even know what to say, how to start, where to go. Or you're so helpless you don't even know what to ask for, so you just sit and groan or cry or sigh. And here's the thing, if you're like me, when you're done with that prayer, you still don't have an answer, maybe a specific answer, but you know you've been heard. You just know that it's in your daddy's court, that it's going to be all right. He says, the Spirit intercedes with words that cannot be uttered. Before we leave this verse, it's just a side thought, and I haven't put a lot of thought into it, but maybe, maybe one of you guys would, would run with it if it makes sense. Remember how 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was talking about the glory? He, he, went, was, had this, uh, he was up in the third heaven. We, he doesn't know if he was dead or he was alive. He says, all I know is that I heard things that I cannot utter. It's just, they're not worthy of, you know, it's like if I try to do them justice, I, I couldn't. I wonder because of these, neither, neither phrase can be uttered. I almost wonder if part of Paul's revelation, that experience was realizing whether he understood it with words or not, that he maybe got a glimpse of hearing the Spirit pray for him. That he, that he realized that, wow, I really am uh, cradled by the Father in my circumstance. I mean, and if, if he, he didn't know if he was dead, maybe he was literally dead and it all became real to him. Words that cannot be uttered. It could be that this was just a little glimpse, a first fruit, an audible glimpse of the Spirit interceding for him. Look at verse 27 now. We're getting close, I promise. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That's the best news of all. That when you can't pray, when you, you don't know what to say, when the, when the Spirit prays for you, He always does it according to the will of God. So He never prays wrong. <laughs> what a great prayer partner. right? Sometimes we'll have prayer partners and they'll pray and you're like, boy, I hope you prayed the right thing. The Holy Spirit, He never gets it wrong. He's always praying according to the will of God. And the Bible says when anything, one thing touches His will, it is done. So the answer is always yes. The Spirit never prays for you when the answer is not yes. Now, you might be surprised at what the Spirit's praying. He might be praying, Lord, give him a flat tire. What? Well, you're going to see verse 28 kind of explains that. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The Spirit only prays good things for you. They might be wrapped up in something that you wouldn't call good. A flat tire, whatever it might be. It says all things, not most things, not 90% of things, right? We read this, uh, and we know that most of the things work together for good to those who love God. No, all things. The stuff you desire and the stuff that you don't desire. But notice, please, that it also does not say that all things that happen to you are good. That's important to understand. It does not say that that flat tire is good, what it says is he's able to take that flat tire and work it together with all the other things he's doing in your life for your good. Maybe some of you have heard this. Uh, it's probably the easiest way to, to uh, illustrate it. Y'all have heard about uh, the Lord as being a, a master weaver. He's one who creates a masterpiece. I uh, heard the story of a pastor who would go to people in, in a hospital and he would have this needlework uh, bookmark. And on the backside, 
it would look ugly. It's all frayed and colors don't make sense. Nothing of it makes sense. It's just this ugliness. And he would be ministering to people and he'd go, yeah, I just get so many compliments on this on this uh, bookmark. What do you think? And he'd show them the backside. I'm like, it's nasty. It's ugly. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. Let me turn it over for you. And he would turn it over and it says, God is love and it's just this gorgeous piece of work. Uh, the point is, we see things from the backside, right? We, we don't see what God is up to. We know that all things work together, even the bad stuff, even the, the incongruent stuff, even the, the colors that don't seem to make sense together. All things work together for good to those who love God, who, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So how was it then that Paul was so completely fearless? continually cheerful, even though he was constantly in trouble. Let me break it down for you just briefly as we close. Here's one. I think that every groan reminded him of glory. He used every groan to make him think into the future, into this future glory. Second Corinthians 4.17, if you haven't written it down yet, do it. For our light affliction, and, and Paul's version of light affliction compared to mine, says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Okay? So he, every groan reminded him of glory. He was not focused, though, on the pain, but on what the pain meant was coming. Something awesome. Everywhere he turned, he would hear groaning, but he would think, you know what? Groaning is a good thing. He says, creation groans. That's because he can't wait to see the new me. He says, my own body groans just because I can't wait to be adopted in full into the family. And in the meantime, he says, even the spirit is groaning. And it's because the spirit is so willing to intercede for me. And the spirit always prays the right thing, never the wrong thing. Finally, then, Paul trusted that God was smart enough and faithful to his own promises to work even the bad stuff into his masterpiece. Can I ask you, as we close, for real, do you trust God that way? If you do, you'll be continually cheerful. If you don't, you'll still be in trouble. <laughs> but you won't have the cheerfulness with you. 